They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. This week, for the news, we did something a little different. We shared some things that we thought were overlooked, but that you should be paying attention to or thinking about at least when the presidential debates come up this week. Brittany and I will be in attendance at least one day of the debate, so excited to see them in person. And then I'm joined by Democratic presidential candidate Julian Castro. As we talk about debate prep, we talked about his policing plan, and we talked about a host of other things. We need to break apart ICE as we know it, and return its enforcement division mostly to the Department of Justice and to see a complete culture change in the way that our enforcement goes about its business here in the United States. The message for this week is that I did another ropes course this weekend. I'm not a professional rope climber or rope courser, but we also did zip lining. And what was interesting about the zip lining is that there wasn't like a release. There wasn't like we were strapped into this thing and then somebody pressed a button and we went down. He literally was like, when you're ready, just step off the ledge. It was sort of this interesting amount of fear and power all in one moment because I was ready for him to release us. I was ready for a button and then it to be out of my control. I actually wasn't ready for it to be a decision that I made. And I thought about what that means in life is that like so often we're ready for the thing to push us. We're ready for the thing to make us do something. But this idea of just stepping off the ledge ourselves actually scares us. So my message, my work for myself is to take that step off the ledge. Let's go. Hey, it's Sam Sinyangwe at Samsway on Twitter. And today my news is about South Bend, Indiana, where this past week, a black man named Eric Logan was shot and killed by the South Bend Police Department. Now, we don't know everything about this incident, in part because the police sergeant, a man named Ryan O'Neill, was wearing a body camera, but allegedly did not have it turned on during the encounter. Now, we've seen this before, but it's another example of how body cameras, despite being implemented across the country and a lot of money going into them, have not impacted rates of use of force or increased levels of accountability for police. But one of the things that's fascinating about this is that it's not limited to this one incident. This is part of a broader pattern. Data posted on the city of South Bend's website show that use of force concentrates in black and brown communities in South Bend. The police are using force in black and brown communities more often. What we also know is that this officer had a history of misconduct. He was reported for making racist remarks in the past and despite that remained on the force. So clearly there is a deep and systemic issue in South Bend with regard to policing that needs to be urgently addressed. And this is coming right up at a time when the mayor of South Bend, Mayor Pete, is running for president. And so as we move into the primaries and the debates, this is a moment where we're going to see how Mayor Pete reacts to this type of situation, what type of leadership he demonstrates and whether or not he leverages his authority as the mayor 
in South Bend to change police department policies in ways that address these issues, to fire the officers and potentially the police chief that allowed this to happen, and to show how South Bend could be a model for the nation if it decides to engage in thinking differently about policing, investing in alternatives to police, creating a police department that is accountable and that does not have a pattern and practice of police violence. So that's what I'm looking forward to seeing, hopefully in the debates. And I think ultimately in the primary, the voters will be looking for that as well. Hey, y'all, it's Brittany. So as the debates come closer, I'm thinking so much about what we often refer to as women's work, the work that women do every single day in this society. And even though people of all genders do it, we often assign these things stereotypically to women, child care, family care, elder care, domestic work. We see time and time again that these kinds of roles, this kind of work, are repeatedly devalued and deprioritized in policy conversations. It is due in large part to the fact that, again, it is deemed women's work. And until women are fully equal in this society, the work that we are seen to perform will not be treated equally either. From our wages to our benefits to our ability to properly care for our families irrespective of our income status— We have yet to see policies that rightfully value women and the work that we so often do without support. As you can imagine, this is deeply tied not just to economics, but also to race. There's a new book coming out about a woman who has become known as Linda Taylor. She unwittingly became the genesis for the trope that we now know as the welfare queen during the 1970s in Chicago. Linda Taylor was not actually her born name at all. Her given name was Martha Louise White, but she used Linda Taylor and dozens of other names along with other fake addresses to commit welfare fraud in the 70s. What this book does is not necessarily further criminalize Linda Taylor, but rather properly contextualize the woman that Ronald Reagan would then use to create an entire trope around Black women. But the truth of the matter is Linda Taylor was someone who knew she'd be marked by race in this country for a long time, ever since she was a little girl. And even though these things were indeed illegal, she was trying to find a way around a system that wasn't going to support her anyway. That doesn't excuse her actions, but what it does do, again, is properly contextualize where we get the idea of the welfare queen from. The fact of the matter is there were a lot of people, politicians and voters, who were very angry about the idea that a social safety net should exist at all. We speak often on this podcast about the ways in which we morally judge people who are living in low-income circumstances, and we conclude that they deserve the circumstances that they're living in. Therefore, it's not up to us to help. So if you are resentful of those folks and you have stereotypes about who those folks are, where they live and where they come from, then you're just looking for any excuse that you can to find a label for all of them. Linda Taylor opened that door for someone like Ronald Reagan to do exactly that. The idea of the welfare queen, the phrase itself, was born out of reporting on Linda Taylor, and it was a trope that Ronald Reagan pulled on throughout his presidency to push back against the idea of social safety nets. This is not limited strictly to the Republican Party. We continue to see the use of this trope through the 80s and 90s, even when we look at the Clinton administration's bipartisan welfare reform efforts. 
The truth of the matter is we know it's wrong to use the phrase welfare queen these days, but people still think it. People still act as though poverty is a moral judgment and that the black and brown women who rely on public assistance are there by fault of their own. It's high time, especially in this election, for us not to just right the wrongs of this last administration, but to look to people who are going to have truly imaginative, bold, exciting plans for our future. And it shouldn't be that what we often call women's work should need a bold plan, but it does. It shouldn't be that universal child care, universal family care is something that we actually put on the table and demand of our politicians, but we have to because we're not in a place where that kind of work is respected, prioritized, and valued. I'm hoping in these debates that we see people come with robust plans for the kind of family life that people deserve, that we ensure a level of quality for our social safety nets so that we can finally be done with this welfare queen trope and recognize that hardworking people, caring parents, who sometimes just need a bit of help, often because of the systemic racism and oppression that politicians still refuse to dismantle, that they deserve that. That those folks are our neighbors, that they're our family members, that some of them are us. That they deserve our respect, our value, and most importantly, policy that demonstrates it. What's going on, everybody? So obviously some huge debates coming up this week, and I hope everybody tunes in. A really incredible opportunity to get more information on all the different candidates. And the thing that I'm hoping they address is something that's been at the forefront of our discussions over the last year or so, the last two years, uh, thankfully, for the first time in a long time, and that's climate change. And I'm thinking about this particularly this week because there's a huge water crisis that's currently taking place in Chennai, India. And it's a crisis that has made the city the first major Indian city to face an acute water shortage to this extent. So four of the city's major reservoirs have now almost run dry. And while there is a little water still available, it's not clear how long that water is going to last. There's this image you can see online of a reservoir, this huge reservoir in the city that was full a year ago, and now that reservoir is almost completely dry. This is just over the course of a year. So every morning, four million people line up every day to fill their cans, their pots of water with government water trucks from across the city. Others, though, who are more well-off are able to pay large, humongous sums of money for private companies to supply water to their homes specifically. Even then, it can take up to four days for a tanker to arrive after you've asked for the water. And the price of each of these tankers has quadrupled in the last month because water is so scarce. People are having to wash their utensils with dirty water. Hospitals don't have enough water to clean their medical equipment. Restaurants have been forced to close. People have been told not to come to work, to work from home in an effort to conserve water at their workplaces. The city's metro basically stopped using air conditioning at all of its stations. And a government think tank recently released a report that said this isn't just going to affect Chennai, that 21 major cities, including New Delhi, will run out of groundwater by 2020. And I wanted to bring this up because... I think it's really important to understand the implications of this on a global level. And as we've talked about before, what's happening in Chennai is an example of how this crisis of climate change isn't something that's happening in 20 years or 10 years or five years. This is something that's happening now. And it's happening mostly to black and brown people across the global South. And that should be of grave concern to us. There are cities that are literally going to run out of water or are already running out of water and cities that are going to be underwater within the span of just a few years. And I'm also really concerned with the prospect of wealthy people being able to afford their own private water supply while everyone else 
who doesn't have that level of income fights over the limited supply of government-funded water. And if you think people are angry now about wealth inequality, imagine a scenario in which there's not enough water to go around for folks. And I think that this is going to only increase the refugee crisis that's happening across the world right now. And obviously, we see what the political implications of that have been up to this point. And unfortunately, it looks like it's only going to get worse. So climate change truly is at the root of so many of our global issues and our domestic issues. And I hope that we have a presidential candidate on the Democratic side who's going to take that seriously and who's going to step up with a plan that is commensurate with the severity and urgency of the issue. This is real. This is urgent. And this is happening right now. So as I'm thinking about the debates, I am interested in a lot of things. Some is about policing, but you'll hear that in the conversation with Castro. I'm also interested in this idea of like, what does it mean to govern? And just a reminder how as you go through the process of deciding who you want to be the next president. I remember in 2016, there were a lot of people, there were activists, there were a whole set of people who said, president doesn't matter. This notion that politics is something other people do and that like there's so many other important things to do why vote or why participate because like your voice doesn't matter. I heard a lot of that. And it takes me to what's happening in the Oregon State Legislature right now. So in the Oregon State Senate, there are 30 senators, uh, 18 Democrats and 11 Republicans. There's a bill coming up about climate change that would significantly lower greenhouse gases in the state. And the negotiations collapsed. So there are more Democrats than Republicans. So they'll win the straight up vote. And the Republicans in their anger just left the state. So all 11 senators literally left the state of Oregon. They need 20 senators to be present to vote on a bill. And because 11 of them have left, that means that only 18 are showing up to work every day and the Republicans are just gone. So the governor has allowed the state police to go looking for them, but they have left the state. So there's this question of like, what's going to happen? But I say all this to remind everybody and to remind myself that the Republicans are willing to use every single ounce of process and policy and power at their disposal to get what they want. I'm not saying that we need to mimic their behavior tactically. I am saying that there are so many resources and tools at our disposal from a process and policy standpoint that we have been unwilling to use before because of some sense of civility or some sense of, I don't know, some sense of the high road. And I will remind you and myself that the high road doesn't always take us where we want to go. Certainly doesn't always take us where we need to go. So when I think about the presidential candidates, I'm looking for big, bold plans. I'm looking for people who not only can say the thing, but can explain why they believe the thing, can help me understand how the proposal will actually work in practice. We talked to a lot of people in 2016 we have spoken to a set of campaigns already. And I'll tell you, there are a lot of people who get the top line right. They're like, we're going to end this. We're going to stop this. And then you say, how? And it just is hot air. It's just smoke. And our candidates to lead the country, to lead the state, to lead the city, they should be able to answer the how. It's not enough that you just like them. It's not enough that they have showed up to somebody's birthday party or had a cool tweet. Too much hangs in the balance. And Oregon was just a reminder of what it means to go to the end. They are going to the end in a wild way because they don't believe in climate change, which is ridiculous. But I want people on the left to be bold, to do these big, big plans. And if you live in Oregon and one of these senators is your senator who's out here not coming to work, please call their office. Please email them. Please tell them that like the institutions crumble when they behave in this way. Uh, so Oregon senators who have ditched the state, get it together. 
and everybody else. Uh, when we listen this Wednesday and Thursday, let's listen for bold. Let's listen for big. Let's listen for plans that'll change the world. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, They sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast, a village in India where everyone's name is a song, a boiling river in the Amazon, a spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore, 
There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. And now my conversation with presidential candidate Julian Castro, who joined me to discuss his people first policing policy proposal, his time as President Obama, Secretary of HUD, and preparing for this week's debates. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Yeah, happy to be here, and thank you all for having me on. Why the presidency? You've done a lot of important things in politics. Why this race? Why now? Yeah, I got into public service originally because I felt very blessed with opportunity in our country to have grown up in a single-parent household, gone to the public schools of San Antonio, had the chance to go to college and law school and be the first in my family to become a professional as a lawyer. And I want to make sure that that kind of opportunity is available to everybody in this country in the years to come. I have the right experience, having served as the mayor of the seventh largest city and as cabinet secretary over a $48 billion budget and 8,000 employees. And I have the right vision for the future of our country to become the smartest, the healthiest, the fairest, and the most prosperous nation in the 21st century. So that's why I'm running. How do you think you being mayor informs the way you think about uh, what we can do to end police violence? As somebody who's actually managed a police department, who like managed a city, uh, how feasible do you think these things actually are in practice? What I've put forward with this People First policing plan is very much tied to the executive experience that I've had. It's based on what I saw as mayor of San Antonio. Um, When I became mayor of San Antonio, we were in the middle of implementing more than 100 different recommendations on how we could improve the police force, including how we could ensure that everybody, no matter the color of their skin or what neighborhood they were growing up in, that they would be treated the same by our police. And we see in video after video that especially young men of color, young black men are being mistreated by police habitually. And what I wanted to do was propose something that I believe could work uh, and could reform the system so that there's accountability, so that everybody is treated the same. How has the response been to the rollout of the plan? There's been a lot of interest because people see these videos all the time. They know that something is wrong. Uh, As I've said before, they know when they see what happened to people like Eric Garner and Tamir Rice and Laquan McDonald and Walter Scott and Pamela Turner, Stefan Clark and Jason Merrow, Michael Brown, Antonio Arce. They know that the system is broken, that even though there are some great police officers, and I know that because I work with some in San Antonio, it's not just a case of a few bad apples, that the system is not working the way that it should. We need to do things like restrict qualified immunity, which would help ensure that the family of one of these young men who's been killed by police unjustifiably could pursue a civil action in court. Or we need to ensure that we end the militarization of our police forces across the United States. 
we've gotten a very strong response. One of the things that's a part of the platform that we've always seen police unions really push against is uh, when you write, require police officers to identify themselves, issue a verbal warning, and give the suspect a reasonable amount of time to comply before the use of force. What the police say when we say that is that they say that that'll make their jobs harder, that that's actually putting their lives at risk. Have you heard that? And then what would your reply be to that? Well, my reply is that I don't believe uh, that that's going to make their jobs harder. I believe that if a citizen, an ordinary citizen, is being questioned by police, whether at a traffic stop or on the street, that they should have the right to know the name of the officer, the badge number. Too oftentimes, I've seen people ask for an officer's name or badge number, and they're not given that even when it's clearly for the purposes of launching a complaint, which that citizen should be able to do to launch a complaint. The underlying idea that citizens should be equipped with that information, because I don't care who you are, if you're the mayor or if you're the fire chief or if you're a police officer on the street, you're a public servant. The public does not serve you. You were there and it's your job to serve the public. And when you say proactively investigate police departments that consistently fail to meet standards, uh, what does that mean in practice? So as we know right now, the only way police departments get investigated is if somebody files a complaint or if it rises to the level of public scrutiny that it forces. So you think about the beginning of the protest in Ferguson, it, it rose to the level of public scrutiny so much so that the DOJ sort of felt like they had to get involved or a mayor or a city official will ask for the DOJ to intervene. What would it actually mean when you write proactively investigate police departments that consistently fail to meet standards? It would mean, to begin with, that we dedicate the staff, the personnel, to be able to proactively, you know, affirmatively go out and understand where there are problems in police departments across the country and not wait for that information to bubble up or for a situation to become so hot or obvious that, you know, then the Justice Department is basically sometimes almost shamed into getting involved or does it out of what some may see as political convenience or necessity. I think the better path is to be strong partners from the beginning with state and local communities to understand where the problems are, to keep track of that. That's why I've called for the establishment of different national databases, including a database of officers that have been decertified. I want a database of excessive use of force, instances of excessive use of force and of police shootings as well that's national. And from there, we can begin to understand where those problems are and then proactively go and investigate, see if there's a role to play. Unfortunately, during this administration, this Trump administration, they've gone completely in the other direction. In communities like Chicago, where there was basically a settlement agreement that they were going to implement that would require the Chicago Police Department to make improvements in terms of how people are treated there, this DOJ basically dropped that and said, you don't have to do it. We're not going to follow through. I would actually follow through. And as I said, I would be proactive dedicating the personnel to go and research what's happening in these communities and step in where it's appropriate. You talked about the data. You know, one of the things that we believe, right, is that we actually have enough data to make the decisions that'll save people's lives. And most of the recommendations actually honor this idea that there is enough data. 
out there to actually like do the things that we think would be important. I'd be interested to know what could we do about not just the local agencies. So as you know, there are 18,000 police departments, but things like ICE, right, or Border Patrol, two of the biggest federal police agencies in the country. What is your vision for how to make them things that don't inflict harm in communities or whether we even need ICE at all? Yeah, you know, and all of these things go together. We need to connect the dots here. And that's why when I released my People First Immigration Plan and also my plan on police reform, one of the things I've talked about is that we need to break apart ICE as we know it and uh, return its enforcement division mostly to the Department of Justice and to see a complete culture change in the way that our enforcement goes about its business here in the United States. And to do things like end 287G agreements, which essentially turn local cops into federal immigration agents, and they tear at the trust between local communities, people in neighborhoods, and their local police departments. So they make people less likely to report a crime. And all of these serious crimes, whether it's domestic violence, it's some sort of assault or shooting or something else, very serious crimes are less likely to be reported because you may have a mixed status family where one person is undocumented, but everybody in that household is not likely to actually call the police when they need the police for fear that that one family member might get somehow entangled in the government's dragnet and deported. That's the wrong approach. Can you explain 287G for people who don't know what it is? Yeah, a 287G is basically a program where local governments cooperate with the federal government to essentially deputize local police officers and local law enforcement officers to carry out some of the functions of federal immigration agents. So it expands their reach and essentially creates a mistrust in the community because when somebody who's undocumented or you know, even somebody who lives in a household with one person who's undocumented, when they see that local officer, that local police officer, now they don't just think, well, this officer is here in case there's a crime. They think, oh, that officer could find out about this and they're going to deport my husband or they're going to deport uh, my brother or my uncle or whoever it is. And that goes counter to what we want to do at the local level. So I've said in reimagining to make more effective our law enforcement that will let local law enforcement do its job and federal law enforcement should focus on its own job. Now, when you say break up ICE, there are people who would say that that'll lead to the border being overrun with criminals and that there's no way to break up ICE in a way that doesn't harm the security of the country. What's your response to those people? There were 19 different ICE employees that about a year and a half ago said that ICE as it exists now should no longer exist. As many people know, ICE is not a longstanding agency. This was an agency that was created in about 2002. And so it's less than 20 years old. Sometimes this happens in government. Sometimes government tries things one way and it just doesn't get it right. That shouldn't be much of a surprise to people out there that sometimes government doesn't get this thing right. This is not the right way to do it. How would breaking it apart not just be sort of reform that changes the composition, but doesn't change the function, you know? You know, I call for breaking it apart, which basically would put the enforcement part mostly under the Department of Justice. But in addition to that, when you take into account that we would end these 287G agreements, 
that, for instance, right now, in terms of enforcement, these enforcement officers can go 100 miles from the border, Customs and Border Patrol. And, you know, there's story after story of people who look a certain way being profiled on a Greyhound bus within 100 miles of the border just because of how they look. That's the wrong type of enforcement. And so I've called for significantly reducing that radius. What that looks like is that we're still going to have enforcement, of course. There's always going to be enforcement of these laws. But we're going to do it in a way that respects human beings, that doesn't rely on racial profiling, and that changes the culture of the enforcement. Let's talk about the People First plan. So the theme is like, how do we do immigration in a way that is sane and doesn't hurt people, which is not what we're seeing from this administration. There are people who would say that plans like yours would lead to open border, like whatever open borders are. That's like a talking point I've heard from people. How do you make the case for a comprehensive immigration plan that keeps the country as safe as it's been and doesn't strip the dignity away from people as we are currently seeing with this administration? Yeah, a lot of people have had a front row seat in this country to the complete failure that this president has been on this issue of immigration. You know, they told us about a year ago that if we would just be cruel enough to separate little children from their mothers, that would deter more Central American families from coming to the United States. And instead, last month, there were 144,000 people that came to our southern border. What I say is that instead of his mistakes and his failure, that we should do something that's more effective, more humane, and smarter doing things like investing in our ports of entry so that we catch human trafficking and sex trafficking more often, um, more humane, stopping family detention, treating people like human beings, not putting them in cages, not separating little children from their mothers. I would end all of that. And also smarter. We have to deal with the fact that we have so many people coming from these Central American countries because they can't find safety or opportunity over there. So they try and find it over here. I've called for a 21st century Marshall Plan to work with Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala so that people can find safety and opportunity over there and they don't have to make that journey over here. Those are the kinds of things that I'm talking about. And we can do all of that and maintain a secure border. How did you get to uh, calling for the repeal of Section 1325 of the Immigration and Nationality Act, an act that I didn't know much about until I saw it in your platform. Can you talk to us about how you got there and why you think that that would actually be something that would make an impact? Usually in the 20th century, when somebody came over, we treated that as a civil penalty, a civil violation. They were still in a process, a court process, but it was a civil violation, not a criminal one. When we started criminalizing somebody coming over, is that's what basically opened the door up to family detention. So what I say is, look, I want to criminalize crime, not desperation. People are coming here because they're desperate. We want to make sure that, yes, they're part of a court process, and we need to improve our immigration court process by adding judges and support staff so people can get their claims adjudicated and find out what's going to happen to them sooner rather than later. But we don't have to sell our souls by putting people in cages, separating little children from their parents. So I would not enforce Section 1325 
as a criminal offense, but treat it like we used to up until about the early 2000s as a civil penalty instead of a criminal one. Now, let's talk about HUD. Is You obviously were the secretary of HUD, and I would love to know what you learned about HUD that you didn't know before you were secretary. I have to imagine that there's so much more that HUD did that you didn't know as well before you got in that role. I did not know what an impact the FHA, which is the Federal Housing Administration, that essentially insures mortgages, you know, insures a mortgage for somebody that generally is a borrower of modest means, somebody's trying to buy a house. I didn't know what a big impact that has in communities of color because the FHA, when it was founded in 1934, it was basically part of the problem. It would not back mortgages to black Americans. It sanctioned redlining. Today, or at least when we left the administration in early 2017, about 45% of first-time black and Latino homebuyers had an FHA-insured mortgage. In other words, they were able to become a homebuyer because of the FHA essentially making it possible for them to only have to put down 3.5% instead of 20%. That's significant because it makes homeownership more possible. And let me say, by the way, that it has a great track record of people being responsible borrowers and paying back on their note. Are there any things that you would do to fix following this current secretary over at HUD to right-size HUD back to what it used to? Or would you take over, for instance, you know, one of the things in New York City is the Trump appointee who runs public housing in New York doesn't seem to be qualified to do that. Is there a way for the federal government to do something about that so that doesn't happen again, regardless of who the president is, but we structurally fix those things? Well, I mean, Congress, I think Congress, with regard to some of these appointments, Congress could pass legislation to require that they have certain credentials. As you know, when it comes to presidential appointments throughout the years, there's been quite a bit of latitude that's been given to presidents. So what do we do about that? Well, you would probably have to pass legislation in Congress to require that somebody have certain credentials. In lieu of that, though, what I would do as president, of course, is to appoint people who are well-qualified for their appointment. I would actually appoint people who are well-qualified for their positions, including these appointments and judges, too. There were two policy positions you had that I did not know as much about before I read them on your platform, and one was about tribal sovereignty. So you've called for tribal sovereignty. would love to know more about what you think the impact of that would be, and why is it important? Well, you asked me the question, which was a good one, about, you know, what were some of the new things that I found out at HUD, learned that I had not particularly worked on before? One of them was the pleasure that I had to work with tribal communities across the country. This was a real priority for the Obama administration as a whole and for my administration at HUD. But what we resolved to do was to work very closely with our tribal communities in a nation-to-nation relationship, recognizing their sovereignty. And for HUD, that meant that we worked on things like um, what the allocation rules would be on grants and on something called NAHASDA, which governs a lot of the federal money that goes to tribes for the purpose of investing in housing opportunity and revitalization of communities. Uh, My commitment is to always recognize and respect that sovereignty, to work with them as peers, And also to make sure that we're 
understanding what the needs, the real needs of different tribal communities are, because you have some land-based tribes, you have a lot of tribes that are not land-based. The fact is that in these tribes, they have different needs, like any community. You talk about the public charge rule, and I didn't have a deep understanding of it's in the part where you talk about reversing some of the things that the Trump administration is either considering or has done. Uh, and I, I wanted to ask you about the public charge rule and, and why you included that and why you think it'll make an impact. Basically, what the administration has done, the current administration, is to broaden the definition of individuals that are considered to be a public charge. In other words, folks that are considered to be a public charge are restricted from being able to be, for instance, in public housing. And it would broaden that definition of a public charge to include different programs that somebody has used. If an immigrant family, for instance, has, let's say, gone to a public school or has utilized some sort of health care service, this public charge rule would be broadened to say, that that family can no longer be in public housing or get government benefits. And I disagree with that for a moral reason and also because the fact is that they are taxpayers. We should meet that need. Switching gears a little bit from the policy conversation, uh, how is debate prep been? Debate prep's been going well. Um, you know, we're, as all the candidates are right now, sort of juggling many different things. We just released this housing policy Uh, doing all of the other things that you do in a campaign from fundraising to doing events. I was just in Iowa. So we're trying to sneak in debate prep when we can. We actually started in earnest to do longer debate prep, and I'm going to be doing that mostly until Wednesday. I'm on the Wednesday debate stage. Is it like what we think of when we see it in TV shows, those of us who are not running for president? (laughs) Yeah, this is not a West Wing style preparation for, no, you know, I mean, some of it is, I think, what people would think of, right? You know, you're going to be on there with nine other people. You want to make sure that you understand you only have probably five minutes in all because you get one minute for an answer and maybe 30 seconds for a rebuttal with 10 people on the stage overall over a couple of hours. That's not going to give each person that much time. So most of my prep has been focused on, you know, I know what I believe. I know what my vision is for the future of the country. Now, how do I convey that effectively in 60 seconds? How do I do the best that I can to tell you as a voter, you know, what I want to do and also why me? Do you think that four years is enough to undo the damage Trump has done around the host of immigration issues? Is there a way to sort of undo the effect of what he's done? It's going to take some time, but I believe the answer to that is yes. My pledge is that I'll do everything that I can using my executive authority as president, everything that is lawful, to try and roll back what this president has done that has gone in the wrong direction. And so even if we're not able to do all of this within a couple of years, we're going to see immediate change with a new president that's going to make a tremendous impact in the lives of immigrants and the migrants who are coming on a daily basis and also families who are here who have a relative that might be undocumented or is looking for asylum. Last two questions. One is, what do you say to people losing hope? There are a lot of people who protested, voted, marched, emailed, called, testified, and the world just seems to keep getting worse, not better. What do you say to those people whose hope is challenged in moments like this? 
as has been said, you know, that this too shall pass. We're going to find a different moment in this country, a moment where we have leadership that believes in all people in this country, no matter who they are, where they come from, what their background is, that is a president for everybody. We're going to come to a moment where integrity and honesty are in the Oval Office again, and a moment where the leadership is looking to the future and not to the past, trying to bring people together and not pit them against each other. But the only way that we can come to that moment is if you don't lose hope. You're the only ones who can bring about that moment by voting, by getting others to vote, by using your voice to make change. And if you ever doubt that that's possible, look what happened in 2018. To complete the other part of that, we need you to go out there again in 2020. And then uh, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Professionally, I would say one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got was that leadership is about priorities. You have to prioritize what you're going to work on because you're going to get pulled in a million different directions. You have to understand what your priorities are and make sure that you dedicate enough time in the day of every day toward reaching the goals that you have based on those priorities. Well, can't wait to see you at the debates. Excited about the policing plan you put forth. Can't wait to see more. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot, y'all. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed.